The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. By various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this great word that you have given to your people, that even in the midst of troubles and trials, we have this great news, this great news that begins with Christmas, that Jesus Christ has come. Father, I pray now that as we open your word, that your spirit would open us up by your word. I pray that we would be eager to hear from you now. We pray this in Christ's name, and amen. Please be seated. So this is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, and traditionally, this has been the Sunday when we meditate on peace. And over the last several Sundays, we've considered hope, love, joy, and now this morning, we're going to look at peace. And the question I'd like us to consider is, how do we get peace? How do we get peace, especially in the midst of troubles? So I recently reread a childhood book called Five Minutes Peace. Five Minutes Peace. And it's about a mama elephant, Mrs. Large. And she has three young elephants. And Mrs. Large is just trying to find five minutes peace in order to sip her tea, read her newspaper, relax in the bath. But these three young elephant kids just keep bursting in ready to rehearse the play lines, to play with the ball, to cannonball into the tub. And she keeps retreating from the chaos in hopes of finding her elusive five minutes peace. And after reading this, I had a few thoughts. Um, first of all, all three of these children need to be spanked <laughs> for disobedience and need to taught self-control. That was my first reflection. And the second is that Mrs. Large, Mama Elephant's understanding of how we get peace is very common. It's very popular. It's understandable. For her, peace is found in the absence of the busyness, of all the demands, of all the trials. Peace is where everyone, everywhere is nice and quiet. And we are all often like Mama Elephant, especially at Christmas. We want our Christmas to be free from troubles. So that way we can sip our tea, our eggnog, our hot cocoa in peace. But, but this is not the reality of God's peace. God's peace does not come with the absence of trials. Rather, God's peace emerges in the midst of trials. And actually, here's the kicker. God's peace comes because of the trials. 
And this is demonstrated clearly at the first Christmas when Jesus, the Son of God, entered a world full of troubles, chaos, suffering, sin, and death. And yet the heavenly message was proclaimed, glory to God in the highest, peace. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So the birth of Jesus into a troubled world shows a very different answer to our question, how do we get peace? We're going to trace out this question in our sermon passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. And Peter calls Christians who are even in the midst of various trials, he calls them to faith, to love, to joy in Christ. You might notice that faith, love, and joy, those are our first three themes from Advent. He calls them to that, and the result is God's peace, peace from God. And Christians are called to faith, love, joy, peace, because of what Jesus Christ began at the very first Christmas. So, let's get to 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So Peter is reading, is writing to Jewish and Gentile Christians who are all scattered across the Roman Empire. Uh, at the beginning, he addresses them as elect exiles of the dispersion. And these Christians are facing all kinds of trials. Rome is at its imperial power, the height of it, and Peter knows that hot persecution is coming. Caesar Nero is ascending. He says that is one kind of trial. But he's also writing to Christians, probably some, some of whom had a toothache with a bad cavity. Right? That's another kind of trial. And there was no, uh, not morphine. What did he do? Novocaine. They didn't even have Novocaine back then. No laughing gas, none of those like, little pinpoint drills. Right, that's another kind of trial. Others might have been on the beans and rice, rice and beans diet slash financial plan. We had that last night. Beans and rice can be very delicious. Right, some of them had financial tightness. Some young moms had months of morning sickness. That's another kind of trial. Some of them had major family snarls. And to all of these, Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. These believers were facing significant trials, and we live also in a world filled with trials. And so what Peter is saying also applies to us. And Peter says that when we are faced with trials of all sorts, our response should be that of great rejoicing, right? not merely tolerating, not just grinning and bearing it, says that our joy should abound. We should overflow with joy. And we should rejoice when we are tried because our faith is being tried. Our faith is tried because God is, God's a goldsmith. God is a goldsmith and our faith is a lump of gold and it's dirty and it's got dross and it's often buried in the ground 
But God is a goldsmith, and he has a plan to make your faith gleam, sparkle, just be glorious. And his plan involves heat and fire and tongs and putting you in there and heating you up, then putting you over onto a hard anvil and hammering you. Right? That's his plan to make you gleam. He's like, you're this little lump of gold. And it's like, is, is this goldsmith doing it because he hates me? All this heat, this hammering, is it because he hates me? And is he just maniacally cackling at every stroke? No. God doesn't heat you, doesn't hammer you because he hates you. God does it because he loves you, loves the gold so much that he wants to purify it of its dross. But what is the gold experience? <laughs> Ouch. That's hot. That hurts. And from the perspective, um, the life being a lump of unrefined gold was much more comfortable. Right, sure, I'm a little bit dirty. Maybe I got some extra dross. But at least there's peace and quiet buried in the mountain. But the goldsmith has a bigger and better plan for the gold could ever imagine. He has in mind a crown. And no king would accept this dirty lump on his head. And so the king, and so the goldsmith puts us into the fire to burn off the impurities and hammers and bends and heats and does it again and again and again so that way there may be a gleaming and glorious crown. And Paul says that our faith, our faith is to gleam brighter and more glorious than any golden crown because that's going to ultimately perish. The goal, the goal is to have faith that praises, honors, and glories at the coming of Jesus Christ. Peter says in verse 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In this goldsmithing process, you don't see the goldsmith, right? which is why faith is absolutely essential from the beginning. You don't see him, but it says that you love him. You love Jesus. You have not seen him, but you love him. And love doesn't resent the heat and the hammering. Love is loyal and doesn't turn away. Right? Peter, who wrote this, he knows what it's like to be in the fire and on the forge. Right? And perhaps it was hotter and heavier than anything we've experienced. Right? He knew what it was like to have his faith tested. Right? Aren't you one of his disciples? Right? I've seen you with Jesus. Surely you know him. And Peter loved his own skin more than standing <clears throat> and being crucified with Jesus. But after this great trial of faith and his betrayal, the resurrected Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And he responded, yes, Lord. And you know what? Sometime after writing this letter encouraging these Christians 
to love Jesus even in the fiery trial, Peter himself went to another fiery trial where his faith, his love for Jesus was again tested. Aren't you his disciple? Don't you love Jesus? And this time, Peter was hammer-hardened. He did not deny his Lord. He was crucified for his name. And the faith of Peter gleamed for the praise and honor and the glory of Jesus. And as, as strange as it may sound, the hot trial of Peter back in the Garden of Gethsemane and in the temple courtyard and on the hill of Golgotha, all purified, shaped, molded Peter's love for Jesus. And that's why Peter can say, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You can rejoice with inexpressible joy because you know that God is a master goldsmith and he's working on you. There's always a point, there's always a purpose for what God is doing. So you rejoice in the sovereignty of God. You rejoice in the competence of God. God doesn't make a bad hit, right? It's not like, you know, you're out there trying to hammer on a nail. It's like, ooh, got my thumb again. God doesn't do that. There's never a miss hit. God doesn't forget about you in the fire. He knows how to prepare the crown. And so you can rejoice in this whole process. You can believe even between hits that this is for your good and it's going to be glorious. And so you believe, you, re, you love, you rejoice in all of these various trials. So the question we were looking at is how do we get peace? How do we get peace? And you may have noticed if you're following along that there is not even the word peace is mentioned in this. Right, how do we get peace? Peace is not even mentioned here. And then just throw out that question, what about Christmas? Right, what about Christmas? And in fact, if we're talking about where do we find peace in this, in fact, it seems just like the opposite. What's this passage about? It's about trials and testing, testing heat and hammering. Right? This is not what Mama Elephant's notion of peace would be. Right? There is no five minutes peace in this. But understanding this process of God's refinement in a Christian's life is essential for genuine peace. Right? Understanding this process in order to forge God's peace is essential. Right? And this is not going to be producing fool's gold. This is real godly peace. This is how you get peace. Faith, love, joy in Jesus in the midst of trial. And we're going to look at that in a moment. How do we get peace? We'll look at that in a moment. But I also want to consider the problem. The problem from our perspective is that we don't like this process. <laughs> right? We don't like being a lump of gold on the refiner's forge. Why? Because it's painful. Can't we have peace another way? Can't we get peace without the trials and conflict? And we try. And we try to find a substitute, an alternative 
way to find peace. And, you know, it's Christmas time. And so we think, well, maybe Santa Claus can bring peace. And I'm only mildly joking. Maybe Santa can fix my troubles. But there's that hope that somehow this feel good, this sentimental, sentiment, ooh, that's a hard word. Why, why do I put some of these words? I know I had trouble time. Every time, you know, believing in the Santa feels can magically fix things. Right? Your marriage is on the rocks, but maybe it can be saved with a gentle snowfall on Christmas Eve. If I can just get home for Christmas, then all will be well. The Grinches will be transformed if I can find them just the right gift. Right? The Scrooges in the living room will have all new hearts with a little bit of hot cider and fudge. But the problem is, what Chase pointed out, is that no amount of fudge can fix a room full of sinners. No amount of sweets can make the heart sweet. The gentle snowfall of snow removes no bitterness. You can have the best decorated and lit house and have a heart that is full of darkness and envy. Right? Santa Claus, for all his holly and jolly can't do anything with your sin. And hear me out. I really love fudge. It's probably my favorite Christmas little sweet. So log that away if anyone needs that. I love fudge. I get excited every time it snows. I really like big bulb Christmas lights. And St. Nicholas does have a respectable right hook. Right? But all of this will not bring lasting peace. Snowflakes can't wash a dirty conscience. Lights can't restore a cursed world. Santa Claus cannot forgive sin. And that is why we need a better Savior. That is why we need Jesus. And Jesus came into a world full of troubles, a world without peace. As the hymn, uh, Joy to the World, that we just sang declares, we are dealing with the reality that sins and sorrows grow, that thorns infest the ground. And Jesus comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, and the curse is found everywhere. The reality of sin and trouble were evident even at the birth of Jesus. And that's why Pastor Doug, again and again, I'm so thankful, reminds us that Herod's soldiers, with their bloody swords are just as much as the nativity as the shepherds, the magi, the star. The, the soldiers who slaughtered children are part of the birth of Jesus. And it's because of the birth of Jesus that there were angels singing in heaven, but it's also because of the birth of Jesus that there were mothers shrieking in their grief because their sons had been murdered. That's all part of the story. And these mothers wailed because they were living in a sinful world. And that's why Jesus came. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus came, Jesus came to make war. 
to make war on sin and wicked tyrants and death and Satan. Right? Yes, we do call Jesus the Prince of Peace, as Isaiah says, and he is absolutely the Prince of Peace. But he is the Prince of Peace as the result of winning, as the result of his victorious war. Peace is the result of the gospel, but peace is not the gospel. Peace is the result that comes from what Jesus has done through the gospel. And one way you can look at it is that the incarnation, Christmas morning, was God's invasion. When God invaded the world, it was the D-Day when he stormed the beaches of Normandy. It was the first strategic move for the campaign to topple Nazi Berlin, right? Get the boots on the ground. We're going to win. So when Jesus was born, he invaded the territory that had fallen into the enemy's hand because of Adam's defeat. And Jesus came into the world in order to take it back. So we think about what is Christmas? Christmas is the beginning of the invasion. And the cross was the decisive battle. His resurrection was the victory and his ascension was the coronation as a conquering uh, prince of peace. And what began, began way back in the cradle in Bethlehem culminates with a cross, with a, with a crown in heaven. But we have to see this process. Right? How did the goldsmith, how did God forge the crown for his son? How did Jesus become the prince of peace? Well, through a lot of trials and troubles, and suffering, and struggle, and death. Ultimately, Jesus was crowned the Prince of Peace because he was crucified on the cross. So that means if there was no cross, then there was no crown. If there was no cross, that also means there is no peace. And what sentimentalism often tries to do is to remove the cross, right? Ah, let's remove the cross because also, let's remove, we don't want to talk about sin. So we don't want to talk about sin, let's not talk about the cross. It's bloody, it's gruesome, it's not peaceful, it's not nice, right? But let's talk about babies. Christmas, babies, babies are cute. And a crown, who doesn't like a crown? It's glorious. And if you want to leap right from the cradle to the crown but skip over the cross, but this is foolish, because it is only through the cross of Jesus Christ that we can have peace. There's no peace without the trial, the trouble, the sorrow. Even at the birth of Jesus, there was a King Herod who was trying to kill him. Even at the birth of Jesus, there was a King Herod who tried to kill Jesus. And at the crucifixion of Jesus, there was another King Herod who succeeded in killing Jesus. But through this, his rule was established, not through the absence of trial and suffering and death, but because of them. This is how he has established his peace. This also takes us back to the question we started with. How do we get peace? How do we get peace, Christian? Well, we get it from Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is our God with us in all our various trials. So how do you get peace? Well, you put your faith in Jesus. 
You put your faith in Jesus because he will save you from your sins. How do you get peace? You love Jesus because he's loved you. How do you get peace? You put your joy and rejoice in him because he has secured your salvation. In all of that, you will have peace. And this becomes a pattern of the Christian's life. Faith, love, joy, peace. I don't know who came up with the Advent tradition, but it works, right? Faith, love, joy, peace. And you have these in the beginning, but it's also you grow in all of this. You grow in this love, joy, peace, right? I'll give you a metaphor to try to help you, uh, help me. Hopefully it'll help you. How do we grow in this? So imagine you are drowning in the middle of the Pacific Ocean during a storm. Everyone floundering with me? Right, so you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, drowning, no land in sight, and obviously you hope for deliverance. And miraculously, there appears what feels like a life raft behind you. And you put your faith in the raft when you slosh in. And this appreciation, relief, love springs up, right? There is this joy and even in the midst of this gale, you have a little bit of peace, right? But here comes the next wave. Here comes the next wave. What do you do? Well, if you had the expectation that being in the raft means peace, means no more waves, right? Then all of a sudden it's like, man, I thought I was in the raft. What's with all these waves that keep coming? I thought I finally had peace. And if that's your expectation, then you just, like, abandon ship, man overboard again. Or your other option is to hold tight, right, to hold on tight. And even as you get doused and pummeled and you're still afloat after the 114th house-sized wave, your faith, your love, your joy, your peace have all have grown, because I'm still here, I'm still afloat. If you haven't made the connection, Jesus is the raft. But allow me to go a little bit further with this metaphor. Right? When you first were floundering in the water and grasping for something, for anything, you believed it was just a rubber raft. Right? When you got in, it's like, oh, great, here's this little rubber raft. But the more that you've come to explore and love and know about Jesus, you have the delightful discovery, the joyful discovery that you're aboard a battleship, right? You thought it was just a little, little rubbery, dinky raft, right? But what you actually came on was a battleship. Now, all of a sudden, how do you feel? Well, a lot more peaceful. That's where first uh, Philippians 4 verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. The peace of God is guarding you, even in the midst of the storm. Right? If, I had, uh, to, uh, if I have the right to name the ship in this metaphor, right, what would it be called? It's the HMS Peace. And you can go... Uh, and even if the name, oh, excuse me, uh, 
I should learn to read my own handwriting a little bit better. Right? So you have, you're in this peace, this peace of God, and you may think that even with this name, peace, then wouldn't it be great to just be harbored, sheltered in a safe, quiet little harbor? Right? It's called the peace after all. But no, 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 that's not what ships are built for. That is not what ships are built for. You can have peace even in the midst of the storm. And you can rest confident because God is at the helm. The Lord has the power over the wind and the waves. And all of a sudden, you're not just merely surviving the storm. You're not just merely staying afloat. But now, you are engaged in the mission. Right? Who else is out there floundering? Who else needs to be pulled in? And actually, your peace becomes one of your weapons. You have your unbelieving friends and say, how is it that even in this financial strain, you're not freaking out? How is it even with this diagnosis, you have peace? How is it that even in this uncertain future, you're joyful? And you say, well, the Lord is my captain. He has been faithful. He has carried me through these storms. Come on aboard. So as we come to celebrate Christmas once more, I encourage you to thank God. And not only for the blessings and the gifts and the obvious good thing. I'm already excited about those cinnamon rolls here in a few minutes. Right? Yes, absolutely. Thank God for all of these good things. But I'd also encourage you to thank God for the trials, for the hammer for the heat, for the waves. Because you know that when there are trials, especially at the Christmas season, you can be sure that God is working. God's working on you. God's working in you. God is working for you. He's working in you. He's working in the world. And the result will be refined faith that is glorious and gleams for the king. And this king is the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father and gracious God, we thank you for the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus, who has conquered every form of cruelty and hatred and envy and lust through the death on the cross. We thank you that he has overthrown war in his victory. And we do look forward to the time when through the gospel we will be able to hang up our own weapons in the great hall. And in this time, this Christmas season, we do ask that you would strengthen our faith, our love, our joy, our peace. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray.